0: Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the ThinkFit Be Fit Podcast Network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, Motor Learning and Clinical Specialist Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience, in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. So welcome everyone to Fitness for Consumption. I'm um, Paul Juris, and again, I'm here with my friend and co-host Gregory Gordon, and we hello, have hello. with us again today, yes, the esteemed Dr. David Bame. Dave, we are so happy to have you. Welcome to the show. And and by the way, it's sort of like you're a regular now, like it or yeah. not. You're if part I'm of the remember, team. Yeah. So. An honorary member of Fitness for Consumption. We're very delighted that you can join us today.
1: Oh, I appreciate the invitation. It's an honor to be here with such uh, esteemed individuals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I resemble that remark. so Yeah, and I'm putting uh, that on my
2: LinkedIn page.
0: Um, So where we are, this season is all about skill. And we launched our uh, first episode talking about what skill is specifically motor skills, and some of the things and variables that contribute to the development of skill and also challenge our ability to perform skills. And we started off the season with a question. Gigi posed a question in his opening monologue, and that was blank is the hardest thing to do in sport. So before we go any further, we want to get your opinion on that.
1: All right. So I, I did give it a, a lot of thought. And uh, there's so many difficult uh, things to uh, to do out there in the sporting world. And, of course, we all have our own biases. I'm a Canadian, so you'd think I'm going to say hockey. You know, a lot of Americans are going to say uh, hitting a baseball. Who knows, if you were in India, you might say hitting a cricket ball. But I'm going to actually, it, it's going to be a bit Canadian, uh, but also American and Nordic. And I'm going to say uh, mogul skiing with jumps is the most mm. difficult thing to do
2: okay and dave if you could walk us through your thought process of how you got there so for example pj and i both considered aspects of genteel's taxonomy which takes into consideration whether the performer is moving or stationary whether they have to manipulate an object conditions of the surface things like that so if you could just walk us through how you arrived at your answer
1: sure so i've read from a lot of people on different um, websites, etc., And a lot of people think that hitting a baseball is the most difficult thing to do. And you can understand that because especially at the, the pro level, you know, the baseball may be coming at 90, 100 miles an hour, which would be translated internationally into 140 to 160 kilometers an hour. And uh, in terms of, um, you know, we've always said, you know, you got to watch the ball, but we know physiologically you cannot watch the ball when the ball That's is right. moving that fast from only 90 feet away. So you mm-hmm. have to predict predict where that ball is going to be you have to anticipate so it's very very difficult so people would argue well you know a tennis ball can be hit at 100 miles an hour but on the other hand you've got a bigger surface with a tennis racket on the other hand you'd also argue though if you're for tennis that you don't have to fit the tennis ball into this little strike zone And so one might argue that maybe tennis would be harder, but in both cases, well, especially in baseball, you're stable. You're standing there and you're not moving. So I Mm -hmm. started thinking about well, what kind of variables do we add to make things even more difficult? And one of the things I came up with is that you know uh, when you're standing there, you could be big or small, you could be strong or not very powerful, but all you have to do is meet the ball. We we aren't saying you have to hit a home run. We just saying meet the ball, which is difficult enough. But for instance, if you're a gymnast, you need power. You need power to get off that floor or get off the device in order to do some of the flips and twists that you can do. And then you need the eccentric strength to land. So if we take your American gymnast, uh, Simona Biles, um, Mm -hmm. she does this thing. The only person in the world that's ever done this thing called a triple double. So a triple-double is uh, a double backflip with three twists. So mm. you've got to get high in the air in order to give yourself time to do that. So you've got to have power to do that. You've got to have proprioception. You've got to know where your body is in space. You've got to know the time because you only have a certain amount of time before you have to lay out your legs in order to try and land. And so now you're going to land, now you need, that's a a lot of reactionary force. So you need a lot of eccentric strength to do that. So I was thinking, boy, that is really tough to do. I think that's tougher than hitting a baseball because a a professional baseball player on average, I looked this up, has a batting average of 0.248. So that means once out of every four times they get up the plate, they're going to make contact with the ball. And not only that, they're going to get on base. So they make contact with the ball more often than that. Anyhow, then I was thinking, but that's choreographed. Simona Biles practices that over and over and over and over again. There's no um, deception involved. She knows that the, uh, gymnastic floor is going to be there. How long the gymnastic floor is, how far she has to run and jump. So it's, it's not an open type of, of movement, you know, uh, mm-hmm. she can predict what's going to happen. So then I said, well, what's tougher than that? Well, then I was still thinking about gymnastics and I was thinking, well, let's do it on a balance beam. Let's do it on a four-inch wide balance beam. Now that's pretty damn Ooh. tough to do, don't you think? Land it on a balance beam. Um, and then you've got, you know, these things. I looked it up, these things called the Garrison and Ursig mounts. So they they run up, they hit this this uh, jump board, they do a flip and a twist, and they land on a four-inch beam. But again, it came to me. Again, it's choreographed. You practice that thousands and thousands of times. And if you're a great enough athlete, you may be able to do that, even landing on a four inch beam. So then we're thinking, okay, again, it's gotta be something open. You can't have it totally predictable. Then I was thinking, how do you, what sport takes those twists and those flips and then puts it in an environment where you can't totally predict what's gonna happen? And then I was thinking, well, there's there's figure skating. Now you got to do it on a blade that's pff, like less than a centimeter wide and you got to land on a blade like that. But again, it's choreographed. So that's why I said moguls. Because in moguls, you're going down a ski hill and the ski hill has all these bumps. And so you may not take the same track every time. The competitor before you changed some of those moguls It made some of the moguls higher or lower, they shaved them off. And then you got to hit this jump after you do the moguls, and then you do the jumps, land, and then again, you're landing in a dynamic fashion. So you've got all these extra um, variables that you have to do with mogul skiing. And I thought when you open it all that together, I think that's a lot tougher than hitting the baseball.
0: Interesting. So there's some really cool features of that that we spoke about in our last episode. So for example, it's a body transport skill. There's a lot of variability in the terrain and the faster you go, the more difficult it is. If you're doing it slowly, you can see what's in front of you and you can anticipate and predict fairly well, even though the moguls are changing you can see it, but the faster you go, the less time you have in order to accomplish that. So it makes it very challenging. And what you also suggested is there's potentially a lot of intertrial variability. So you may not take the same route in your second run as your first. And if people are in front of you, that's going to change the condition in front of you. So yeah, that's a really interesting insight into a difficult skill. And you need, by the way, the power and stamina to be able to execute it. Gigi, you wanted to say something there.
2: Yeah, so PJ, you you hit on most of the points, but the it did make me think of one other thing that I didn't mention. So Dave, just if you're curious, my take on it was returning a volleyball spike. So when you're on the defense side, when someone's spiking the ball down, your ability to meet that ball and put it back into play, and PJ's was... Um,
0: Wait, wait, you're not going to give away mine. You're going to let me talk, talk about my
2: own, aren't you? Fair enough. But what I was going to put in my preamble in the episode where we spoke about ours, just the margin for error in terms of like dire consequences. So like at first I was starting to think about motorcycle racers, you know, again, the track is predictable, the bike is predictable, but the consequences of missing a turn are like, you know, Formula One drivers that are going around these hairpin turns. When you take into consideration what you just brought up, the mogul skiing, you know, the the margin for error that if you fall, the consequences, you know, it's if you don't hit a baseball, you know, you may uh worst case scenario, you, you may get may, booed. You're at you may get booed or you may get a cramp in your external oblique, but you're not going to die if you really misjudge a turn on a motorcycle at really high speeds or skiing at really high speeds you know there can be dire consequences so at least on the cognitive processing side i think that has to weigh pretty heavily too
1: just to to throw in one of the things uh, new areas that we're going into our research in our lab Uh, which connects with this as well is we're taking a look at uh, time perception with exercise and especially with Uh fatigue. And uh, Uh we want to take a look and we've done some preliminary work in this area and, and, and seeing how, when, when people are fatigued, how their perception of time changes, you know, the, one of the theories about time perception is how many, if if, for instance um, you know, I think we're all over the age of 25. I'm just gonna take a wild guess at that. And so when you were Barely. when you were 10 years old and you had the summer off, you had two months off and you thought it lasted forever. Now, if we say, you know, we've got two months to our next meeting, you're going, oh my God, I gotta get prepared. Like two months is just around the corner. <laughs> and why is really? that? One of the theories is about the number of events that occur in a period. And we're not gonna say what a period is because Time is variable, but when you're 10 years old, there's not very many events occurring during the summer. So it just seems to flow really slowly. In our lives right now, you know, we've got this meeting right now. You probably got meetings later on, you know, you gotta go drink wine out at your California state. Um, you got all these meetings. So you got all these events. So if you have more events, then time tends to be altered. Times, it times tends to go faster. And so when you're doing these events, such as doing mogul skiing, and you've got all these moguls that you have to go over, then you have to do a jump and twist your body at the same time, spread your legs, then land. That's a lot of events. And so compared to just standing there, whether whatever you're doing, you're doing a tennis serve, you're going to hit a ball or whatever. And now you're putting more events than the ability to uh, anticipate what you should be doing during that one second that you're doing your flip is very, very difficult. Interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, the we talked about cognitive load and it sounds like the more events that are occurring within that period, however you choose to define it, that increases the cognitive load and that increases the challenge. I mentioned in our last episode that I did some work with uh, a researcher in the UK, Michael Duncan, and he was looking at the timing anticipation and timing using a sequence of lights going moving in an array and the subject had to flip a switch when the light reached a certain point so they're anticipating it reaching that point point. and what he discovered was the greater the level of exertion the poorer their accuracy in being coincidental with that light so when you combine the number of events with level of exertion, all of a sudden, we're really challenged in some of these activities.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, going back to the uh, hitting a baseball, like I say, you've got the the speed of the pitch, you've got the spin of the ball, um, you got the environment. On a windy day, your your curveball is going to move more depending on the, the direction of the wind than on a, uh, on a non-windy day. Uh, so there's a number of variables there, but compared to some other sports um standing there waiting for that ball to come in there's there's not that many variables but but the speed and the anticipation is a very tough thing to to uh to accommodate
0: yeah and if the pitcher is good and he's crafty mm-hmm. he's changing those pitches from one to the next so the, there's very high intertrial variability and what they want to do and even what a tennis player would want to do since you mentioned tennis is you want to get your opponent anticipating what they think you're going to do. And once you've got them locked into some anticipatory response, then you change what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. So you can get very, very crafty and almost force them to do something different or make a mistake, which is what really highly skilled tennis players do. So, you know, I, I cut Gigi off because he was going to tell you what my thought was. <laughs> and I'm going to pay homage to you Canadians. I said the most difficult thing to do in sport is to score a one-timer slap shot. Mm. So you're skating as fast as you can up the ice and your teammate's going to pass you the puck. And usually when it's professional, that puck's coming really quickly. You've got to wind up take your shot and make it so the stick is coincidental with the puck at the moment it gets to where you're going to strike it. And then the puck has to get through all the players in front of you, past the goalie and into the goal. So I said that was the most difficult thing to do.
1: And yeah, it's it's interesting because often, um, again, depending on who you are and where you're from, you take things for granted. So for me, I played Mm -hmm. hockey from the age of six and I played competitively until I was 19. I played junior hockey. Um, and I still play hockey. I'm 64 years old. I'm still playing hockey, but I'm not quite as good as I used to be. So, <laughs> but, Almost as good. But almost, almost, yeah. yeah. But to me, uh, like when I think of skating, it's like walking, it's like running. But I, I took a friend from a Sri Lanka uh, last year and she had never skated before. And the difficulty she had standing up was amazing. And so you're right, When when... If, if you're not a natural skater, you haven't skated for most of your life, then just standing up is a huge deal. And then to skate at top speed and hit the, 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 the puck at the right time, well, just imagine how much sensory and processing and efferent information is going on so that you don't fall down and, and look like an idiot on the ice.
2: That's a perfect segue to one of the things we spoke about in the last episode, which is stages of learning, going from someone like who you just mentioned that is not familiar with skating. So, all her cognitive and physical resources are going to just not falling and hurting herself, as opposed to being able to process higher level information like hitting a puck or something. So, but let's, I'd like to take a step back for a second. So, we defined skill in our last episode as consistently achieving a movement goal under a variety of conditions with an economy of effort. So do you have a definition of skill
1: that you like to use? I can't, I can't beat that one. Um, no, I, that's, that's, uh, I can't really add anything to that definition.
0: Well, we'll give credit to Susan Higgins because that's whom I learned that from. So great. That's a good place for me to be. So yeah, i, I'm I happy would. happy you see would, it that I, way.
1: You know, uh, as, um, you know, the more degrees of freedom, the more events happening in a period of time. And you can, so going back to again, what you said about the economy of movement. Again, when I'm playing hockey or people better than I am playing hockey, I don't think about my skating skating is just something that happens so my skating has been shifted to my uh, my cerebellum and it's automatic and and now i can just focus on hitting that puck so there's an economy mm-hmm. of my brain uh that only has to focus on the puck now it doesn't have to focus on the skating so my my skill level in hockey you know, even well, at my age would be fairly high, I guess, of course, compared to a young person, it wouldn't be, but still it's, there, there's an economy in my, um, in my skill for hockey, because I can, I can, uh, uh, automatically do a lot of skills. I don't have to think consciously about.
0: Let's take that to the next step. So we're talking about economy and we're talking about how to achieve skills. So let's talk a little bit, if you, if you will, about how we train for these things and, You know, when you see personal trainers working with folks and they're telling them to contract everything in their body, contract your core, contract your glutes, contract this, contract that, that suggests not economic uh, approaches, but quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to train people in a way that improves economy of effort, because look, if you're not economical when you're performing, you're not going to make it through the fourth quarter, right, or the third period in hockey you're going to be gassed because you've just been wasting all this energy out there doing things that you don't necessarily need to do. So if, if you could spend a little time with us, how do you factor economy into a training process? If you're working with, with athletes or even just everyday people, how does that weigh in?
1: Well, um, yeah, we're probably familiar with the terms internal focus and external focus and so Doesn't an internal focus would be you know i'm thinking about i need to contract my bicep uh, harder or i have to push off harder with my my hamstrings whereas the external mm-hmm. focus would be as we are saying before i just have to hit the puck into the net i don't have to think about what my deltoid is doing or what my, my uh, erector spinae are doing and that sort of thing so naturally of course if i can't skate in the first place i need to have more internal foci in order to learn how to skate but once i change that then i then i can uh, change my focus to an external focus so in terms of of skill development if i can take the beginner and make that person into a uh, a skilled skater let's say if we stick with with hockey then um then i'm putting them in situations um where All they're focused on is the external goal and and the rest of their body uh, will 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 adjust in order to uh, optimize that uh, that situation. So if if you're feeding me pucks and uh, I'm trying to 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 hit the uh, the net with my my slap shot and I'm missing, then I realize I've hit the puck to the right. Uh, or I've hit mm-hmm. the, to the left, so I will automatically adjust my feet in order to to get that done. I don't have to really tell myself to do that because I'm focused on where the where the puck is going. So um, right. I, I think for, for for skill, we have to incorporate. Uh, you know, often when we're we're training, we're incorporating um, uh, physical fitness aspects with skill. So we often see, for instance, in, in tennis players, uh, rather than just you know, keep on hitting a, a tennis racket, they often use a medicine ball and throw it from the right and left while they're moving to the right or left on, on a clay court and sliding. So um, they're, they're, they're doing similar skills, but in a slightly different environment so that they, um, they, they get a, a novel uh, stress. You know, you've, have you heard, I can't remember the author's name. He talked about the OK Plateau. Have you, do you remember the OK Plateau? The o- no.
0: no, that's new to me.
1: Okay. So, and, and if I remembered the, the name, you'd, you'd, you'd know, I know the, the, the OK Corral. But the I OK Corral. That's right. It. Yeah. Well, this is the OK Plateau. The OK all Plateau. Right. Okay. So let's take another sport. I've been playing tennis since I was uh, like 18 years old. So my God, that's uh, 40 years. 46 years ago. So 46 <laughs> years of tennis, you'd think that I'd be getting better and better, but I'm not getting better. I'm, I'm just, I'm staying the same all the time because I'm playing mm-hmm. the same guys all the time. I could get better even at the age of 64. I could get better if I forced myself to to start taking lessons and learn. In fact, lately I'm now doing a semi-Western grip and I've changed the way I hit my forehand. I'm hitting a lot more topspin. So I'm not on the okay plateau actually because I've improved my forehand by changing my grip. But most people are on the okay plateau, they keep on doing the same thing over and over. So we need to change and add new stressors to these people. So they get off the okay plateau and you know, have them do something with the medicine balls, have them do something on on the uh, the clay courts instead of the hard courts or on the grass courts, but change things up, but they still have to do similar movements. So that's the autom- automaticity of the cerebellum is still there. Right, Gigi?
2: Yeah, I um so i'm actually familiar with that concept under the term the power law of practice and it speaks to like why someone they get a guitar for christmas in three years they're playing really well and then after those three years you know they either like plateau or they get worse because exactly they're not continually challenging themselves but dave i've got a couple questions for you based on what you just said so my first question is when you were talking about Um, taking a novice and initially they have an internal focus. If you're working them as a coach or trainer or something in that capacity, is your cueing and feedback um, designed to give them an internal focus or you just accept that that's probably what they're doing and you're actually giving them cueing and feedback to sort of, draw them away from that towards an external focus.
1: You're right. I'm, I'm trying to give them an external focus, but I'm breaking down the skill into its component parts. And so um, I'm also a squash player. I used to teach squash. I t- I've taught tennis. And so if when I t- take a beginner, I'm not going to toss the ball to them. I'm going to toss the ball vertically in front of them not so then all they have to worry about is the height of the ball, not that the ball is going in this direction and then bouncing up. I'm just going to have it bounce Mm -hmm. up and down. So now I tell them, you know, to hit the ball from low to high. And so once they can Perfect. do that with just a drop ball, then I can toss the ball from over the net. And now they have another variable to contend with that the ball is going forwards and coming up and then they have to adjust. So you're right. I'm just telling them to hit the ball low to high, uh, and they will, will adjust, but I've compartmentalized each part until they can actually hit a, a drop ball properly. Then they can hit a, hit a toss ball properly, and then I'll move and I'll toss the ball away from them. And then they have to move to hit that ball. And eventually all this comes together after weeks or months, And then we can, then hopefully it will be, you know, somewhat compartmentalized for them.
2: Okay. So your cueing is actually geared more towards external focus. Mm -hmm. And then my second question is, so what's your position here? Is exercise a skill or is exercise a tool that we use to become more skillful at other things like hitting a racquetball or.
1: Uh, Well, it depends on what your focus is. If you're a CrossFit athlete, exercise is a skill you know mm-hmm. to to do some of the activities in crossfit like the uh, the pull-ups that they do i tried that a couple years ago and i damaged my shoulder and i i i, had, I couldn't play tennis for a year because i do my you know my my chin-ups slowly and methodically and i watched a crossfit video and here's these guys reaching up with their hand and they're tossing themselves up and in yeah, kipping pull-ups down. they call it. kipping that's right that's the term so i thought well I'm going to give that a try and see if I can do more pull-ups that way. And I could that day and I couldn't do anything for a year and a half because I damaged (laughs) my shoulder from, from bouncing on my shoulder like that. So yes, exercise can be a skill. You know, if, if you're doing Olympic weightlifting, obviously that's a, that's an important, uh, that's a, that's a difficult skill. Now, for somebody who's playing tennis racquetball squash, then exercise is a means to an end. And therefore we're, we're using exercise either to, you know, improve our anaerobic performance or aerobic performance, make us more powerful, make us more, um, uh, have more eccentric strength. But while we're doing that exercise, uh, like we said before, with those tennis players who use the medicine ball or whatever, we can incorporate the skill into the exercise and make it more uh, sport-like, um, and conform to the trading specificity model.
0: Dave, let me let me go back and sort of ask a different kind of question around this internal external focus issue, because something dawned on me here And from the perspective of perspective. We talk about not necessarily having a black and white, a yes or no, but there are different ways of looking at things. So there's this sort of debate that goes on in queuing, should we be using an internal focus or an external focus? So that word or suggests that you do it one way or the other. There's, there's a binary process here. What I'm almost taking from you is, do we use internal focus and external focus? In other words, in the continuum of skill acquisition, as you're working with a new performer, would it be appropriate to start them with an internal focus and then transition them at some point in the process into an external focus. And I don't know if anyone's actually looked at it to see how that changes outcomes. What do you think?
1: That's a great question. So I just, as I said previously, I would have my my tennis student or my squash student focus on trying to hit the ball. I wouldn't tell them you know, to have a lateral flexion of their shoulder or, or rotate their trunk. It, it should happen automatically. However, sometimes mm-hmm. I, I can see the, um, the benefit of doing that. So for instance, uh, you know, I've got arthritic knees now and, and I don't do a lot of uh, distance running anymore. But if I was tired and running up a hill um, and my quads were, were starting to uh, get really fatigued, then what I would do is I would focus on my, my glutes and I would tell myself to use my glutes and my hams to power myself up the hill. So I'd be focusing in on the muscle so that I would try and use my quads less. And so I'd try to be using muscle substitution there. And, and in fact, there is a funny story. I was doing my PhD and, and I was 30, ba, 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 how old was I that? That was like 1990, I was 33 years old. So, um, uh, this, this uh, professor, uh, a female professor in the School of Physical and Occupational Therapy at McGill University, and she challenged everybody to do a wall sit. So, you know what a wall sit is, where you push your back against the wall, knees are 90 degrees, and says, who, who do you think is, let's see who can last longest well i was the big jock of the of the class and most people thought bame is going to last longest and so we sat there and sat there and and this prof was just a, your average sized woman 40 something years old so i was younger than she was at that time she didn't look all that athletic she certainly didn't have my muscles and uh, so i thought you know, i'm going to kick her butt but she ended mm-hmm. up staying up longer than i did and she said her secret was that she would concentrate on okay i'm going to start off i'm going to hold it and the quads would get tired then she'd internally focus and say to herself okay contract your glutes And she contract her glutes for five or 10 seconds to give her quads some rest. And then she'd go back to the quads. And then then she'd go to her hamstrings and say to herself, okay, contract the hamstrings and glutes and hold on to that and give your quads a rest. So she was using muscle substitution, whereas I didn't concentrate on anything. I just trying to stay up. And I probably was just blowing out my quads for the most part. So there are periods when using an internal focus can probably help.
0: Interesting. I would think that it might. Be sort of the antithesis of training for economy. But I think the purpose of doing that is really not necessarily moving or controlling a position economically, but simply sustaining the position. But I think that's a really interesting idea. And it gives us a new dynamic rather than doing one versus the other, having a continuum of training. Um, that develops substrates in a certain way and then starts to transition that into skillful movement and economical movement seems like it could be a really good solution for people.
2: Yeah, actually I have a a different perspective on that as well. So I actually see an internal focus more for late stage learning, particularly for someone like a bodybuilder to where like speaking of something like a plateau, you know, there's a point, and this is what the season is largely dedicated to There's just, there's only so many reps or there's only so much load you can put on a bar. But if you have an internal focus and now you're taking this skill, let's say you're just doing a bench press, which you've done a million times. You, if you have if you've been having this external focus of just focusing on moving the bar, now you add this internal focus. In a way, you're creating these constraints that are you're losing some efficiency and economy. But, and whether, you know, it'd have to be measured, whether it ends up with some sort of better outcome, but at a minimum, it's going to be a different stimulus in terms of co-contraction than when you're accustomed to. And maybe in a periodization scheme for a period of time, like you take someone that's really advanced that you're starting to eke out like all the things you can do with them and you just give them an internal focus for no other reason than just disrupting, you know, what they're, what they've been accustomed to.
1: Yeah, and your example of bodybuilders is a unique example in the in the athletic world, of course, because they're so focused on contracting their muscles. So it would seem that that would be a uh, particular sport that um, internal focus might. Uh, might, might play a greater role, but I was just trying to think of other examples where an internal focus might uh, be important. And, um, you know, when we first started this interview, we we're talking about gymnastics and talking about landing. And, um, you know, we know that a lot of people have problems with their landing, especially if they have a, a, a valgus uh, landing maneuver. And and so perhaps in those types of situations, you might tell your athlete to focus on, you know, a greater contraction of the abductors in order to keep the the knees in, in a proper alignment or um, you know, a greater absorption with, with the quads when you land so that you, you, you hold that landing. So, um, yeah, there, I've never in my life seen an answer unless it's maybe the speed of light and even that changes where there's an absolute, you know, and there's always room for some variety in the, um, in in what you're doing. And so there may be a predominantly correct way of doing things, but you can always insert, uh, these, these additional stressors um, in order to uh, get off at okay plateau.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really enlightening for our listeners, Dave, because for a lot of people, there are right and wrong ways of doing things. And of course those change as we learn something new or, you know, some new evangelist is out there talking about the way they do things. People are very quick to jump onto new bandwagons, but it's refreshing to say, look, There's no one way to do it. And even if there are better ways, it doesn't mean you can't use something else and inject it into a process for no other reason than just inject it in the process, change it up, Mm -hmm. create some variability, Uh, you know, because our definition of skill is still being able to accomplish your goal consistently in a variety of conditions. And therefore, in order to be able to do that, we need to have a variety of stimuli, or else it's just not going to work.
1: Mm-hmm. And 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 people are constrained by their own genetics and training. So if we think again mm-hmm. back to uh, tennis, think of the variety of shots that you know Roger Federer can make, and we've seen him make over the last twenty years. You know he's you know there's there's the argument of who's the goat now? You know is it Djokovic? He's obviously well, I shouldn't say obviously, but it's going to be. He's probably going to beat both uh, Rafael Nadal and Federer in a number of uh, grand slams. But who's mm-hmm. the most beautiful player in the world, has the most greatest variety of shots? Well, I think most people would say Federer is. Who's, who's the the most efficient at doing what he does? Well, that would probably be Djokovic. Who's the most mm-hmm. resilient and powerful? Well, that would be Nadal. And so depending on your your uh, repertoire, um, it's, it's going to allow you to inject more or less variables i think you could inject more variables into federer's game than you would into nadal's game nadal's going to beat you in one way he's just going to power you over but federer's going to beat you in 10 different ways
0: good point
2: so dave i have a question for you let's say we're just taking Like an average listener of ours that's probably just mainly interested in losing a little weight, building a little bit of muscle, you know, they, they may or may not have any sort of outside other sport or skill they're trying to prepare for or get better at. But what are your thoughts on taking some aspects of skill training into, you know, the strength and conditioning program?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Well, the uh, the first thing that jumps to my mind is the uh, the aspect of variety. You know, going to the weight room every day and and sitting on a bike to get your uh, aerobic, and then uh, going doing the weights to get your strength and hypertrophy can get pretty damn boring after a period of time. So um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, injecting like. I had a grad student uh, a few years ago, Israel Halperin. I don't know if you know of Israel Halperin. Uh, he does a lot of work in, um, in terms of psychophysiological uh, work. And um, he, he was a boxing coach. And so he got me into boxing and the workout was phenomenal. And so I had to learn how to properly box. um, But at the same time, of course, using the power and and the strength in order to to hit the bag as hard as I could. So the enjoyment went up measurably uh, compared to going to the weight room over and over and over again. And then I had to, in order to, 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 to throw a, a cross or an uppercut or whatever, I had to learn how to, to move my body properly again. And uh, I think that helped me in terms of my other sports, again, playing tennis, playing squash, playing hockey. And so my my enjoyment went up. My uh, Again, I, I got off the okay plateau of playing those sports. I learned a new sport, which then helped transfers because when you're boxing you really need that that core stability and you need that core stability to transfer your angular momentum now we do that in tennis and squash but in tennis and squash you're you're hitting especially in squash a very small ball and tennis a larger ball but you're not you know exerting the, the forces at least um, that i would exert when it comes to uh, punching a bag or It was actually a person hitting somebody in the head. So I really learned how to transfer large forces and torques uh, by taking up this new sport. And then this new sport was intense. Uh, we do it for prolonged period. So I burned a lot of calories. Uh, I altered my uh, neuromuscular coordination and I I received more muscular endurance as well as strength. So, um, yeah, it was, it was terrific. I really enjoyed boxing.
0: Interesting. I think, you know, just adding, more to the repertoire, building what we call the fitness ecosystem, you know, doing more things which allow us to solve more problems. And the more we do that, ultimately, the more fit we become uh, because, you know, fitness is really a measure of how effectively we move. Mm -hmm. And so I think that contributes to The overall ability to move which then will help people to put on muscle and lose weight
1: yeah and i think it relates back to um you know children as well you know one of the issues is uh, how early do you start specializing in a particular sport and if all you do is you start playing tennis at the age of six and you did nothing else then you, you tend not to be able to adapt to different environments as well as somebody, again, we go back to Federer, who was supposedly a, a great soccer player as well as a tennis player, et cetera, et cetera. Wayne Gretzky, um, great hockey player, was also a great softball player and a lacrosse player. Um, sure. You know, uh, oh, geez, a Can- Canadian uh, basketball player who now coaches the New Jersey Nets or New York Brooklyn Nets. Um, Steve Nash. Oh, Steve Nash. Steve Nash. Yeah. Great soccer mm-hmm. player, supposedly. So you could see in his footwork on the basketball uh, court that you know he had great footwork, and I'm sure that uh, was transferred from from soccer. Gretzky had f- great footwork. I'm sure that was transferred from from soccer and lacrosse, etc. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. You, know, you know, when you add new skills, they. We talk about training specificity, but training specificity doesn't mean that you have to do the exact same thing over and over and over again. You need to do similar things repeatedly, and then and combine all those skills, which will make you a far more skilled individual.
2: Wonderful. In our prior episode, PJ and I were talking about you know what you're when you're talking about all these athletes. You know what the one of the things they have in common again is their skill in terms of being able to predict um you know which is based on experience and conditioning and um but what do you think about taking elements of prediction and randomness into just the strength and conditioning setting like so if someone is doing a lunge or a bench press or you know just pick an exercise adding some different elements that would you know um that would vary the the predictability and the randomness of what they're doing in order to tease out some of these variables that then that can then be useful in a sports setting. So what are your thoughts on using those in just a very sort of narrow strength training application?
1: Yeah, it gives, it gives me two thoughts. One thought um, uh, applies to pacing. You tell a person to do uh, 10 repetitions and they will automatically, whether they know it or not, will pace themselves so they can do those 10 repetitions. And so we've done a mm-hmm. number of studies on, on pacing. And, um, we found that when you don't tell an individual how many reps to do that, the, the force output changes at the start of the, uh, of the set. And so by doing what you're saying is to throw some randomness in there, then you can, you can alter the way that the person, um, uh, has their force output during a a belt of exercise. And if they know Mm -hmm. exactly what they're going to do, they have to do 10 reps, they have to run for five minutes, they have to do whatever, Um, they're going to set up some sort of pacing. You want to alter that pacing and and make sure that their system um, isn't conserving energy all the time. Of course, Pacing is a good thing if, you know, if we're running a five kilometer race and we know how much energy we need, but during training, we want to surprise and stress a system. So I think that randomness is very important.
0: Agreed. Uh, Dave, as usual, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. We learn so much from you and hopefully our listeners can take some of your insights and find ways to apply them. And uh, we really look forward to having you join us again as an honorary member of yes. our podcast, for sure.
1: All right, we we'll really appreciate it. I'm, I'll wait for the shirt. And <laughs> yeah, don't
2: wait for the check but the shirt.
1: <laughs>
2: Hello, all. GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend, Jennifer Schwartz, on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. All right, and we're back. So PJ, we've had a really interesting discussion with Dave. And so now it's time to look at training for skill. But before we do that, I asked Dave this question, but I didn't ask you this question yet. So what's your stance? Is exercise a skill?
0: You know, that's it's such a loaded
2: question in a way
0: because everybody's gonna give their opinion. Dave certainly gave his. I think that all exercises are skills, especially when they are goal-directed, right? right. So it doesn't mean the skill is perfected. It doesn't mean that we're executing the skill well, but the nature of any exercise really is a skill and as an example take a biceps curl a simple Mm -hmm. dumbbell biceps curl right most people can do it with their eyes closed they don't even think about it right they pick the dumbbell up off the rack Mm -hmm. but there are so many things that go into executing a biceps curl Mm -hmm. and we don't think about those things For example, how heavy is it? So we need to know, you know, how much force do we need to apply in our hand just to hold the thing in our hand? Mm -hmm. Too much is going to fatigue us. Not enough, the dumbbell is going to fall on the floor. So just that part of it alone is a level of information processing that we have to manage in order to hold it. What position am I in when I start the movement? Where Mm -hmm. is the dumbbell when I start? What is the objective? Where do I want the dumbbell to move to? What's the Mm -hmm. end point? And so what's the total range of motion. Mm -hmm. So I have to control for that. How much force do I need to generate in order to accelerate it? Mm -hmm. So that's a decision that I have to make after that, I have to stop it someplace. Now it doesn't stop instantaneously. We have to slow it down and bring it to a stop. Therefore Mm -hmm. we have to plan for that. So that is the action of the antagonist muscle that's involved. When does it turn on? How hard does it turn on? All of these things are considerations that have to go into something as simple as lifting a dumbbell from a straight arm position, lifting it toward your shoulder and stopping. It's a skill. Mm -hmm. And it might be an easy one relatively, But we are training people to perform skills, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, and and I would agree, and especially if we look at how we define skill earlier, which is it's goal-directed, voluntary, um, has to be able to be performed with a certain amount of precision under a variety of conditions. So just like you said, most people, once they acquire the skill of doing a bicep curl, they can do it on a cable machine they can do it on a dumbbell they can do it on a barbell you know they they they're able to apply this basic skill to different contexts so yeah I think it meets all the criteria for being a skill
0: absolutely and you bring up an interesting point as well if it's not a dumbbell maybe it's a cable maybe it's a barbell maybe it's a machine maybe it's an elastic band Mm -hmm. all of those devices and implements have different properties and characteristics that go into the information processing component of the skill. Mm -hmm. We sometimes get so focused on the load that we're moving or the repetitions that we're executing, or even the speed now. So if we're doing Mm velocity-based training, but each one of those implements introduces a different type of element into the control condition. And therefore it changes the constraints of the skill Mm -hmm. people need to think about how many different ways can we do a biceps curl not simply that it's a biceps curl and it's some mundane exercise but what we do with it how we challenge people is what makes it a different type of exercise for people
2: Mm -hmm. all right so let's get into it a little bit more so how can we take this skills-based approach which is you know looking at things like the environment and you know different sorts of stimuli or lack of stimuli, and apply that to simple things like bicep curls and lunges and kettlebells and all sorts of what are considered gym activities to help us achieve the goals that we set out for, which are, for most people, losing a little bit of weight or uh, increasing some muscle mass?
0: You know, that's a good question. And I think before we get into some of the answers, in the past, we've talked about developing substrates. Mm -hmm. And if... Our listeners have had the opportunity to hear us talk about physical substrates, those physical capabilities that we have to have or cognitive substrates, understanding what the movement goal is, what the task is, and seeing how those things factor into the performance of any exercise. We need to add a couple of more things for people to consider. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a little while ago The risk associated with, for example, a motorcycle rider going around a high-speed turn. Mm -hmm. So there's a cognitive element to that because we have to think about that. But there's another kind of element there, and that gets into our psychological state. Mm -hmm. Our readiness to perform in anything. Our level of arousal and stress. That we're feeling. I mean, there's a perfect example ongoing right now. And Dave talked about Simone Biles. Right,
2: very interesting.
0: And how incredibly physically talented she is. And now, you know, unfortunately, uh, she's hit a breaking point during the Olympics and she's withdrawn from the Olympic Games. Now, look, that's her decision. Mm -hmm. And I support whatever she wants to do. She only has to answer to herself. So without getting into the politics Mm -hmm. of this, the point that I'm making is she is so stressed that she can't perform. She did a move the other night where she lost control of her body in midair, and she's putting herself at serious risk. And so that emotional level of arousal, Mm -hmm. which is she's hyper-stimulated and therefore unable to perform, that's a substrate. So a psychological readiness or arousal state is a substrate. Any professional athlete that has ever performed on on a big stage in front of a lot of people knows stress. You know, I worked in the NBA. I worked with basketball players that could go in practice, stand on the free throw line and hit 30 free throws in a row, nearly with their eyes closed. And then in the heat of the moment during a game, they can't even hit the rim and they lock up. So this notion of psychological substrates is an important one for people to consider when they're training others. How do we modify those? How do we overstimulate? Can we overstimulate someone in a training environment Mm -hmm. so that it better prepares them for Mm -hmm. the performance context? Can we do that? So that's one thing that we should think about as we go forward. There's another substrate that I'd like to introduce to the conversation and it's called the perceptual Mm -hmm. substrate. So perception, think about what that means, it's information gathering. Mm -hmm. Another word that we use in human movement science or term is selective attention. Mm -hmm. What it means is that the performer is paying attention to critical features of the environment that impact their performance. They're focused on that. And let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. I was doing a role play with some trainers, and I asked the trainer to do an exercise, which was very simple. She had a medicine ball in her hand. I asked her to do a forward lunge and place the ball down on the ground and then return to the starting position. And she understood what I asked her to do. She did the forward lunge, bounced the ball, and went back to the starting position. And I thought, okay, maybe I didn't explain that correctly. So I said, let me make sure you understand what I'm asking you. Do a forward lunge, place the ball on the ground in front of you, and then return to the starting position. And then, sure enough, she did the lunge and bounced it. Mm -hmm. But when she did it, I was looking at her and I noticed that her eyes were fixed on something way at the other end of the room. We were in a group fitness studio. It was like 40 feet long. We were at one end and she was staring at something at the other end of the room. And I asked her, what are you looking at? And she said, well, I'm looking at a horizon line on the wall because it's helping me to maintain my balance. Mm -hmm.
2: Which is a good strategy.
0: Which is a good strategy if the goal is to maintain Mm -hmm. your balance, right? But here's the problem. She wasn't looking down at the ground where she needed to place the ball. What I did then was ask her to focus on a point on the ground, lunge to that point and place the ball there and return to the starting position. And when she did that, she placed the ball on the ground as directed and returned to the starting position. So the problem wasn't that she was a motor moron, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people would assume. The problem is that she wasn't focusing on the right bit of information. Yes, staring at the wall will help you to maintain your balance, but it doesn't help you to identify the point in space where the ball needs to be placed. This is what we call a perceptual substrate, selective attention, gathering information that is critical to the task. One more quick example, back to the NBA and free throws. Mm -hmm. You're standing at the line. There's one second left on the clock. Now we've got a situation brewing we're down by a point. You have to hit this free throw. It's your second of two free throws. You have to hit it in order to tie just to extend the game. So we have a psychological issue here, There's stress, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, the fans are waving their arms. They're jumping up and down. They're stomping on the bleachers. They're yelling and screaming. All of that information is impacting our ability to perform this task perceptually, all we need to do is focus on the rim or the release point in space. Mm -hmm. We should tune everything else out because none of that information is relevant to performing this task.
2: Selective attention. Right. Some of the really interesting research they do on, I've seen it with tennis players, so they they track their vision. And I don't have a better model, but typically when you're teaching hitting or something, you'll say, all right, uh, focus on the ball. Like, watch the ball come in. And I've seen studies where they look at high level tennis players and high level tennis players, not only are they not looking at the ball coming into their racket, they're looking ahead on where they plan on hitting the ball. So their eyes might be, you know, completely on the other side of the court because they've, they've got the skill that's become so automatic to them. They have the available resources, you know, they're making a prediction about where the ball is coming and then focusing their attention on where they plan on hitting the ball.
0: Mm. You know, that's a really interesting point regarding baseball. And Dave did make the comment that you can't watch the ball Mm -hmm. and you can't. Our pursuit tracking ability with our eyes is not rapid enough to keep up with an object moving like that. So if you look at accomplished baseball players, what they do is they watch the ball to the point of release so that they can gather enough information about the ball so that they sort of can make their prediction. And then their eye immediately jumps to the point in space where they're predicting the ball is going to be, that's a skill in and of itself, making that prediction and then training your eye to go where it needs to go in tennis, it's going to a point on the other side of the court where you want the ball to go Where this ties to is your comment that you did in our opening monologue for the season about automating skills, Mm -hmm. automating functions. And the value of automation is the more we automate, the more it frees us up to gather more relevant information about what's going on in our environment. That's what allows us to perform at a high level. When our information gathering is targeted on basic fundamental movement, we don't have the opportunity to gather information about more complex, intricate things that are going on around us. Mm -hmm. But when we automate function and we don't have to think about that, then we can shift our information gathering, our perceptual substrates can be shifted towards much more complex things that are happening. And that's what I've said is Michael Jordan's greatest asset. He's got so many skills automated that he can pay attention to things that are happening around him that other people simply don't see. And that's a tremendously valuable asset. What we want to do on some level with our clients is to introduce this concept. And so why don't we talk a little bit about some examples of things that we can do and, you know, we're not going to necessarily get deeply, deeply into it in this episode. It's certainly something that we can do in future episodes where we focus on an element, but let's talk about some of the things that we can do in training people that introduces these new substrates, perceptual and psychological substrates, and looks at things a little bit more skillfully.
2: Yeah, so why don't we look at something like the knee extension, which a lot of people think might not have any utility or at the most, just some baseline utility at generating some quad strength. Someone, if they do it often enough, and again, that's variable to the person and their experience, but assuming they do it somewhat consistently, let's say within six months, they'll have that skill pretty well automated where they can do it consistently. They can start and stop the bar at different speeds, at different locations. Um, so once they have that, once they can show that proficiency, yeah, we can start to, for lack of a better term, mess with different aspects of training to, um, to actually help them become more (laughs) skillful. So something that we could do is looking at just what visual stimulation. So adding things to the environment, subtracting things from the environment, making them track an object, uh, while they're doing the knee extension, having them close their eyes. Um, there's a bunch of different things we could do to just distort the visual field while they're performing the exercise
0: yeah and and, you know the visual field in a leg extension we need to think well what is it doing so when we're using our vision to gather information what information are we actually gathering and what we're really doing is using our visual system to help us understand the position of Mm -hmm. our foot in space that's it it's a very simple thing so that that's called exteroception, by the way, mm-hmm. using vision for information about our movements. So what can we do? Well, we can have somebody close their eyes. And so if we remove the the visual information, now they're dependent on some other form of information processing. And that goes to proprioception. I can tell you from experience, we did a research study when I was at Beth Israel Medical Center, looking at proprioceptive acuity in a leg extension task. And what we discovered is people are very inaccurate. When you take away their vision and ask them to move their limb to a specific angle or position in space, they can be as much as 20 degrees off. Wow. So proprioception is not really that accurate. And when we force people to use that as a control mechanism, it can have these negative effects so that we're really not achieving our goal, because we don't know how to do it yet. Once we start to get a handle on it, Mm -hmm. though, once we get a sense proprioceptively of how we're moving through space and to what target position we're moving, having that experience is enough to allow us to replicate it. It's sort of like going into a dark room for the very first time and moving your arm, your hand up and down the wall in order to find the light switch. Right. The first time you do it, you're going to sort of flail around a little bit and you're going to search for it. Once you've identified its position on the wall. Now, the next time you come in, your hand goes right to that position. So the experience that you have is going to help you to accomplish the task. We can play with that with something as simple as a leg extension giving someone targets, taking away their vision, telling them when they're right and when they're not. And then once they get, have success, seeing if they can repeat it and repeat it from different starting and end positions. It's a very simple way of introducing skill into what otherwise would be considered a very mundane exercise. Mm -hmm.
2: And to our point, it's just that the, the more we can, uh, the more things we can do to, to add some interference to the skill and ultimately have to use different ways of processing that information, the more flexible we can make the skill and the more adaptable we can make the skill. So the substrates that we build in the gym from using the knee extension but taking the skill-based component to it, um, now these things together can really help us even more significantly when we're out in the world playing golf or playing volleyball walking whatever we're doing
0: sure and there are other things we can do as well and I'm not plugging a particular piece of equipment but there is a leg extension that was made by hammer strength a long time ago it's called the isolateral leg extension and basically there were two manipulanda for the legs but they were independent of one another hmm yeah, so I could move my right leg independently of my left leg What's interesting about that is potentially I can ask someone to do a leg extension, but move each limb to a different endpoint in space. Yeah. So they have to focus on two different targets and move to those targets. And we talked about Fitts Law in our last episode. That's what we're doing is we're applying Fitts Law to something very, very basic as a leg extension. Of course, we can do that with dumbbell curls or bench Mm -hmm. press or any other type of activity. And then you mentioned something else around vision is hyperloading vision. Mm -hmm. So have someone do a movement and they're using their vision for something completely unrelated, like tracking an object through space. So while they're doing this leg extension, their eyes have to follow something else. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a balance task, changing the depth of the visual field is almost a bit disorienting. So if you have a target in front of someone's Face and they're doing a single leg stance balance training exercise, moving the target away from them and then rapidly moving it toward them. Yeah. You'd be surprised people fall over backwards when you do yeah, that.
2: Yeah. I've seen it. Yeah.
0: So those are examples of things that we can do with vision, tracking medicine balls, playing catch, those types of multitasking elements increase the cognitive load and they challenge our perceptual substrate in this case it's vision. Yep.
2: And so let's just go a few other systems too. So interestingly, I worked with players from both local NFL teams last year and as everyone knows, last year there're no fans in the stands. And when I would speak to the players they were significantly disturbed by the lack of noise, funny enough. And there were some, you know, anyone can see the records of both local football teams last year weren't spectacular. But what the players would tell me is that when they would start to get down in a game, and if they were down by a couple touchdowns, whether you're home or away, there wasn't the energy of the stadium to kind of like put you into that next gear. And it was really uh, it was really impacting them and disturbing their ability to just to... To do what they need to do like we were talking about with simone biles to just compartmentalize and get into the flow state of doing what they're used to doing
0: yeah i mean there are two things that we're talking about then here there's the perceptual capability of getting information parsing out what's unnecessary but then this also ties into our arousal state mm-hmm. so what you're suggesting or describing here is that yelling the fans cheering this energy that is being created through this auditory mechanism gets people aroused on some level and it helps them perform you take that away and it changes things well what if we gave someone noise canceling headphones while they were working out so that they were working out in an auditory void Mm -hmm. how would that affect their ability to perform Mm -hmm. Another thing that we can do with audio is create independent temporal controls, start stop controls so that when we're doing an exercise, regardless of what it is, we have to start when we hear one tone, we have to stop when we hear another tone. So now instead of saying to somebody, you're going to do 20 repetitions, or we want you to go to 90 degrees. What you do is you have them focusing on the sound and when they hear a sound, they begin when they hear a different sound, they stop and then we can make it a directional thing as well. So we're adding these substrate conditions into the task, which makes even the most simple mundane things more skill related, more interesting for the performer. And then ultimately those translate into performance in real world conditions.
2: Right, and while we're doing this again, just to keep hammering this home, as we do it and you keep automating the base level skill, let's say we're still on the knee extension and we're playing with sounds in the environment, the more you can automate that skill, because if you can do this skill basically in a bunch of different ways under a a bunch of different conditions, then you're giving yourself the best opportunity for reducing injury risk. but also, as you get better at this thing, you can do all the regular stuff too, which is increase load, uh, increase velocity, significantly decrease velocity. You know, it just really opens up the parameters of what you can do with just this base level exercise, whatever that might be.
0: Oh, yeah, I agree with you. And regarding the injury part of it, the way I like to think about it is we're improving our economy of effort. Mm-hmm. If we think about the definition of skill that we offered, it's achieving a goal consistently under a variety of conditions with an economy of effort. The more we automate, the more economical we become, the more economical we become, the less stress we put on our body. And when we reduce our physical stress load, and improve our ability to deal with our cognitive load, that frees us up to move efficiently. And that's going to help us perform better whether that reduces injury risk, is a question in and of itself. And you know me, Gigi, we've talked about things like this. I hate to say that we can reduce injuries because in my opinion, we don't know when injury is going to happen until it does. So it's hard to say that anything really effectively reduces injury occurrences, but at the very least, if we can make ourselves more efficient, that's going to improve our ability to perform and that has positive connotations.
2: Fair enough. So, you mentioned proprioception. Let's look at that for a second. And when vision is available, we tend to rely on that to really hone in our movements. And so, any trainer that's ever worked with someone, you know, if you ask someone to do the same exercise they're doing easily with automation, well, as soon as they close their eyes, you'll you'll typically see a disruption. They might like lose their balance or they'll pause. So we know Mm -hmm. that reliably we weight vision most heavily when it's available. But if you take it away in a specific context, like you mentioned that someone's closing their eyes, it doesn't surprise me at all that initially you saw what you did, which is that people really couldn't be nearly as accurate as they were when they had vision, but over time they could learn to be. So I think that's a really interesting way of using proprioception in a meaningful and safe way, as a and again, there's definitely a time and place for using unstable surfaces. But um, we know that some of the, if not risks, some of the the inefficiencies of using unstable surfaces are the time you're spent just wobbling around and not really able to use significant load to you know maximize your training time in the gym, which is a priority for most people. So coming up with interesting ways, meaningful ways of making us rely on our proprioceptive system, um, to help automate movements, I think is, is certainly something we can and should be doing as well.
0: Sure. I mean, if we do joint angle replication stuff with people with their eyes closed, it's a fairly inaccurate thing, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So certainly asking someone to close their eyes and find a point in space is an interesting mechanism. It doesn't mean that they'll be accurate, but we can train people to improve their accuracy. I think the mistake people make is in removing visual information and relying on proprioception for things like balance, which is getting to the unstable surface idea. I don't think that works very well. I don't think that proprioception in that way is helping joint position sense is not necessarily helping. Hmm. What we need to think in terms of proprioception and balance are the mechanoreceptors in the bottom of the feet, Mm -hmm. right? Those pressure receptors in the soles of our feet that tell our brain where our center of gravity is over the foot. Mm -hmm. And as we sense that change in center of gravity over the foot, now center of gravity is not center of mass, Mm Center of mass is the balance point in the body. Center of gravity is the vertical projection of the center of mass over the base of support. Mm -hmm. As that changes and as that center of gravity moves closer and closer to the edge of a foot, Mm -hmm. the brain senses that and starts to enact a a corrective mechanism, a corrective response. So you might
2: widen your step. You might um, do something to really widen your base. So you'll you might just pull your center of mass back to where you have more distance from your base of support. So there's different strategies you can use in order to, if you're trying to maintain your center of mass over your base of support, there's different strategies that someone can use in order to uh, achieve that.
0: Right. And as we're thinking of a training application, what I would recommend is using something like an air pad or something similar, a towel, a rolled up towel standing on that so what that does is it slightly desensitizes the mechanoreceptors in the feet so that subtle changes that we could normally sense because we're on a rigid surface we don't necessarily get that subtle information anymore and we're then having to make corrections and by the way we don't correct this by tightening our core this is something that is really misunderstood this is not a core function Mm -hmm. at all we enact corrections to balance by applying pressure through our feet, right? So if you try standing on one foot and think about where you're fatiguing, you're not fatiguing in your core. It's the muscles around your foot and ankle that are fatiguing mm-hmm. because we're applying pressure through our feet into the floor in order to make these subtle corrections in the position of our center of gravity. If we use an AREX pad or a rolled up towel, While we're doing these things, we're desensitizing that information. We're making it a little bit more difficult, Mm -hmm. which then heightens our other senses. Mm -hmm. We don't even have to do it with our eyes closed. We can do it with our eyes open because we are removing some of the information. We're removing some of the sensitivity and accuracy of the information that's coming up through our feet, which forces us to then process different kinds of information that's helpful that's going to help us with skill development
2: so do you think that the eyes closed just imparts too much risk or you think it's just not as transferable as something such as what you just mentioned
0: well i think it i think it depending on the the condition that you set up it could be very risky Mm -hmm. to take someone's vision away but i just think it's too cliche Mm -hmm. i think that what everybody does is say okay we're going to close your eyes there are other things that we can do besides closing eyes that can change the way people perform. And using these soft, pliable surfaces, those things can be very, very effective in improving performance just by taking a little bit of information away. You don't have to take the whole thing away.
2: PJ, off off the podcast, we were talking about using an Eric's pad on a leg press just to see you know what that feels like when you push into a plate so i actually did that in the gym yesterday mm-hmm. it is much harder to know how hard you're pushing into the plate i mean i see what i'm pushing because the weight stack is next to me but if i had my eyes closed i i would have a um, a very distorted idea of how hard i was pushing because it just feels so different it really feels there's a What you feel is a lack of information.
0: Yeah, I'd like to think of using that as an insensitivity tool. And you're right. When you're pushing into that, it's difficult to know how much force you're producing for two reasons. One is because it is dissipating a little bit into the pad, but two is because the reaction, the reactive force is delayed. You push into the pad, you get the reactive force, but it's later than it normally comes. So that slight delay, that lag time, between what you're producing and what you're sensing really can throw you off. Mm-hmm. And these things have direct effect on performance. So doing it is really challenging your perceptual system to gather that information to make effective use of it. And that's training mm-hmm. for skill. And that, mm-hmm. you know, what it also brings in is a, is a last point here, because We can also change the space in which we're working. We could add temporal elements to what we're doing, timing our Mm -hmm. movements. Um, For example, if you have someone do a step up on a box, they're going to get into a very good rhythm Then all of a sudden throw a medicine ball at them while they're doing it. And what they will do is they will time their ascent to the top of the box so that they get to the top at the same time that the ball arrives so that's adding a temporal component an environmental constraint to the movement but lastly this comes down to cognitive load right you know how do we load people up how do we change the way their information is being gathered how do we add or subtract or really challenge them to think about things subtracting serial sevens managing different things that are going on all while doing these fundamental basic movements and what we do then is we Automate those fundamental movements, and that's what we're ultimately trying to do is create automaticity.
2: I would. Yeah, sure.
0: All right. So I guess the question is what really matters? You know, we're talking about all this. So what really matters?
2: All right. So to me, what really matters is obviously people are going to the gym first and foremost, probably to lose a little bit of weight or build some muscle. And the way they're trying to get there is by doing these exercises in the gym. So the more you can automate these gym exercises, like pressing and pulling and various other things you can do in the gym. um, And you use the skill based approach that we're talking to that actually opens up the window to using more load using more velocity, changing direction rapidly, you know, these other things that can help you achieve these very simple goals of losing some weight or building some muscle more efficiently. So that's what really matters. Yeah, I agree. Um,
0: and a, and a, just as a, as a word to the wise here, because some trainers, they may take that as, all right, let me go in and create the most complex conditions I can and really overload right. people and... Look, we don't want to start people off by throwing the whole kitchen sink at them. And the idea of automation is to progress someone through stages of automation, not necessarily trying to automate a complex thing right from the beginning. So we do want to break things down and automate components in a systematic way until we've gotten someone to a high level of automation. Trying to do it all at once too soon is actually very risky. And we need to be smart about this. Yes, let's automate skills, but do it in a logical, systematic, progressive way. And then people will start to demonstrate a performance that is good for them, is good for their health, it's good for their skill, it's good for their strength. And when they just want to lose a little bit of weight and put on some muscle, it's good for that too.
2: Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Fitness for Consumption. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we loved creating it for you. Now, we want to hear from you. So drop us a comment at our Instagram account, at Fitness for Consumption, and give us your take on what the hardest thing to do in sports is, and why, and we'll pick an entry at random and bring someone on the show to talk about it. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to help us out by following us on our Instagram page at Fitness for Consumption, subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast on your preferred listening platform, and sharing the love by inviting some friends to listen to Fitness for Consumption. Thanks, everyone.